This is episode number 204, from X Games gold medalist to mom and entrepreneur with Jen Hudak. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. But I also knew that going to the Olympics and having that cherry on top, you know, like would going to the Olympics be enough or did I have to go to the Olympics and then win? Would getting third place at the Olympics be enough? What was going to be enough for me to really feel good? Because winning X Games a few years prior, I thought that was going to be enough. And that faded away after just a few months. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And I'm pretty excited about today's podcast because Jen and I have a lot of similarities in our lives. Mainly we had baby boys that are about a week apart, which is kind of crazy. And Jen is also a life coach and an entrepreneur, and she's also a fellow mountain biker. But strap on some skis and the two of us part ways. Jen Hudak is an American free ski athlete specializing in half pipe skiing. She is a two-time world champion, five times X Games medalist, and four-time national champion. In 2010, she won nearly every competition there was. X Games, U.S. Open, World Ski Invitational, Dew Tour, and U.S. Nationals, just name a few. But one contest eluded her, the Olympics. She had a vision that half-pipe skiing would be an Olympic sport and served as a proud advocate for the sport over her 13-year professional ski career. With the help of Jen's efforts, half-pipe skiing made its Olympic debut during the 2014 Winter Olympic Games in Sochi, Russia. But as she pursued her quest to add Olympian to her highly successful list of career achievements, the unthinkable happened. Horrific injuries and, in addition, one of her competitors dying, she had to rethink her goals. To make matters even harder and more devastating, her father passed away, losing a five-year battle with a rare form of leukemia. The world had turned upside down on Jen. Losing her father, with whom she had a close relationship with, and dealing with the harsh reality of being a retired professional athlete and feeling like she had lost her purpose was super hard and a really dark place for her. So what happened next? She dusted herself off and started making new choices, one after another. Here's a quote I like from her website. My life is a constant work in progress. I still struggle with balancing masculine and feminine energy, overcommitment and burnout, fully accepting myself and all of my shortcomings, learning to love my body as it is, not based on physical performance or aesthetic, saying no with love and grace, and engaging with conflict from a place of deep compassion and curiosity. She writes some great blog posts as well, and she hasn't just stopped there. She is a new mom to baby Hudson. She is the co-host of the podcast Balance Pursuits and the co-founder of the Teardrop Trailer Company out of Utah, Escapod Trailers. Three main things you will take away from this podcast are dealing with insecurity and self-worth, how goal setting has changed over time for Jen, and how getting your confidence back despite injuries is totally doable. So you'll learn those three things and a whole lot more in today's episode. 
Something I've been doing is constantly trying to evolve my free weekly newsletter that you can sign up for at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And the format is letting you guys know the podcast guest of the week. And I'm going to start changing things up to include one thing that I've been thinking about during the week and also a journal stem for you to think about or even write down. One thing that's been on top of mind, and I've talked about it on this podcast, we've had guests talk about it on the podcast as well is being proud of the work that you're doing and not being focused on the numbers or the achievement or the outcome of that work. Because oftentimes we can get fixated on numbers or money or a number of views. And while that is nice to see your work improving and you're reaching lots of people or being financially rewarded for the things that you're doing, that's not really the point of why you're doing a lot of the things you're doing, especially if you're in the content business. I think if we can look at fulfillment as being proud of the work and the way that we're showing up every single day as the basis of how we gauge success and happiness, there's going to be a lot more fulfillment in that than saying, I wish that I had more downloads or I wish that I was more popular or I wish that I made more money because that is a moving target. The amount of money you make, the goals that you set for yourself, they're all wonderful, but whenever you achieve one thing, you're just going to keep wanting to achieve another thing. And you always keep pushing it out and pushing it out. So if you can be proud of the work for the sake of the work itself, being proud of your effort, being proud of the thing that you're spending your time doing, there's going to be a lot more value in that for you. And you're going to feel a better sense of purpose. So that's what I've been thinking about this week. And I'm also going to be including that in my newsletter. And that's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you aren't aware, we are also available on Spotify. So here is today's amazing guest, Jen Hudak. Jen Hudak, welcome to the show. Thank you. So happy to be here. One of the most exciting things that I learned about you, I mean, you're multiple time world champion. You've won gold medals from the X Games. You've done lots of rad things, but I was really inspired when I heard that your husband took your last name. He did. Yes. It's kind of a funny story because I think in some ways it makes him sound more progressive than he really is. Oh. <laughs> um, but basically, both my husband and I lost our fathers, and I was fortunate to have a wonderful father that I love dearly. He passed away about five years ago. Um, he had leukemia and ultimately passed away of just complications from treatment. And Chris also lost his father, but he had an entirely different relationship with his father. His parents were divorced when he was very young. His dad was an alcoholic and verbally abusive and just not somebody that he really cherished. And even at this point, you know, his mom remarried and has a different last name than him. So he had no attachment to his last name. And once we got married, I had originally thought I would take his last name and just started thinking more about it. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to change my name and, you know, maybe we could hyphenate. And he was like, no, I don't want to hyphenate. Maybe I'll take your last name. And I thought it was just, you know, something he said in passing. I didn't really take him too seriously. And I said, well, when we have kids, we can figure that out. And then he ended up surprising me for my birthday. And he just put his little new ID card that had his changed last name on it in a birthday card for me. And he ended up deciding to take my last name, which is super special because it's just my sister and me. So with my dad being gone, it was like, it was, I don't know, it was kind of an end of our family's run on that name there. So now 
little Hudson has the last name Hudak too. <laughs> yeah, that, that struck a chord with me because I don't think my brother is ever going to have kids. So the loony name is going to be gone. And we actually thought and talked a little bit about yeah. Bradley having my last name, which we ended up not deciding yeah. that ultimately. But Bradley has my dad's first name. So that's pretty fun. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I love it. Yeah. So you have had an extraordinary life so far and there's so much more life to go, which is awesome. And you've done so many interesting things in your life. And just listening chronologically to your path and how you've gotten to where you've become has just been cool to hear the amount of wisdom that you've gained from all of these different experiences in your life and the importance of taking out that wisdom with our experiences that we have. And something that I heard throughout the things that you like talking about through podcasts and things that I've read about you is that goal setting has always been really important to you. What was the first goal that you remember setting for yourself? Oh my gosh, that's a tricky question. So I'm going to go with like the first dream that I had, because I think it kind of in a sense was a goal that I can really remember was that I wanted to be on the U.S. women's national team for soccer. Hmm. I played soccer. My dad coached me when I was a kid, became the president of our our town soccer association. And, and we had a really strong youth team. And in 1998, we went to watch one of the women's world cup games in a stadium, not far from where we live. And I just, it was the most incredible thing. This is like Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain. It was that team. I, so, ha- I had Mia Hamm's you know. poster on my wall in fifth grade too. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that was like my first real goal and big dream that I had. And then it kind of, a lot of my goals were in skiing from that point on. Once I started competing in skiing and saw that there was some potential there, my focus kind of shifted into that zone. Yeah. So how did you switch from soccer to skiing? Because your dad also helped you get into skiing. He did. Yes. Well, a little backstory. My parents actually met in Utah. So that's where I live currently. But I was I was raised in New England between Connecticut and Vermont. So my parents moved there before my sister and I were born to focus on career. And they just thought, you know, we'll get our family started and then we'll move back to Utah. Well, they ended up getting stuck there for a little longer than their original five-year plan. But one of the first things they did after moving to Utah or sorry, moving to Connecticut was buy a cabin in Vermont so they could be closer to nature and mountains, although they're more like rolling hills. And so that's where I learned how to ski And soccer and skiing, I mean, I was, my life as a child revolved around sports. I started competing in skiing when I was in eighth grade. So I would just go up on the weekends. It wasn't soccer season in Connecticut. And then I did that even through high school. I would be in Connecticut for soccer season. I'd move up to Vermont for ski season and train and compete. And then I'd move back to Connecticut for lacrosse season. And then in the summer months, I would just go to all the sports camps. And I did some theater in there too, but that kind of fell off by the time I got to high school. It was a little too much. <laughs> and we're going to definitely talk about being a mom, but as a mom, what do you think about the importance of having like access to doing lots of different sports growing up? Like, What if Hudson says from a young age, I want to focus on just one sport? Do you agree with that or do you think that kids should be doing lots of different sports? Well, I think it served me to do a lot of different sports, but I also had a lot of different interests. I don't think it would have been good for me to be forced to pick one and focus. I think it would have led to to burnout. 
if my son, for whatever reason, only has one interest, which I highly doubt, <laughs> knowing who his parents are, I don't think I'll, I'm not going to make him do something that he doesn't want to do, because I don't think you get anything out of forcing someone's hand either. But yeah, I, I definitely think in general, that it serves athletes to play different sports as long as they possibly can. So how did you decide to focus on skiing? And I mean, you probably would have been successful in a ton of different sports, but skiing really took off for you. How did you decide that that was the one? You know, skiing really did. It, it took off for me. It was also it was the only individual sport I had ever participated in. And I really loved team sports. I loved having to work together. I think there were a few factors. One, my high school soccer coach was not a great coach for females. He had a very crass, aggressive style of coaching and basically took a team who in the youth league against the state, we were always making the finals for the state tournament. And by the time that same exact team was in high school and the entire starting lineup for varsity was the team that we played like against all these same teams throughout our youth. We just could not hold it together. He kind of ended up pitting some of us against each other inadvertently. And so soccer really started losing a lot of its appeal. One of my teammates was kind of the star. She was a phenomenal player, but he just, you know, latched on to certain people. And so soccer started just falling off by the time I was in high school. And then lacrosse, I actually, all the way up until my senior year, was deciding between going to college and playing lacrosse in college and following that path or skiing. And at one point, Dartmouth had recruited me and they had a ski team and they had a lacrosse team. And I went to this like recruiting camp for lacrosse and I met with the coach and talked to her and I was like, so can I be on the ski team in the winter and then the lacrosse team <laughs> in the spring? And she looked at me like I had three heads, like she absolutely <laughs> did not want that to happen. So at that point I started, I didn't like that I had to choose one or the other. And I think because someone in the lacrosse realm told me, I had to choose. It probably pushed me a little bit towards skiing, but I think there was also this aspect with skiing where, you know, by the time I was 15 years old, I was traveling internationally to compete and it was this individual thing, but I still had a team that I could train with. And I think it just suited my personality. It was a really exciting time in the sport was half pipe skiing at the time was really new. And so I was just getting to experience a lot of things for the first time that a lot of people hadn't. And that was really appealing to me. I think it just wanted to see where it could go. And how did you select half pipe? Because there's so many different disciplines within skiing. Yeah, I started as a mogul skier and my dad taught me to ski and our just our favorite thing to ski on the mountain was moguls. It was the most challenging thing you could find at Okima where I grew up skiing. There's not super steep terrain. We don't have powder. There's not like cliffs to jump off of. So moguls were the hardest and most challenging thing, which I I'm drawn to challenging things. I like doing hard things. <laughs> and when I went in to join the freestyle team, actually, they tried to convince me to join the race team because there were more girls and they thought socially it would be a little better. And maybe they were right, except that I'd never had any interest in ski racing. So I joined the freestyle team and the half pipe started kind of at the end of a mogul run. And originally when I first started skiing it, there was a sign at the top that said it was for snowboarders only. So I'd kind of like sneak in there on my skis and I was such a rebel. 
And that's kind of how I like started getting into a half pipe, but I didn't start competing in it or really even realize that there was a potential to compete in it until my sophomore year of high school when I started attending Okemo Mountain School. And we had a new coach who had roots actually in Park City and she was on the US ski team for aerials. And she just felt like it was better for athletes to compete in more than one discipline. And we were traveling to compete in all of these mogul competitions. And now they had half pipe competitions. So we should just start competing in those too. And thank God for her, because I don't know that I would have done so otherwise. And in 2002, I qualified for junior world championships. It was the first ever junior world championships for half pipe skiing. And I won that event And then things just kind of consistently just kept building from there. That's so cool. And something that I think is really interesting is at a young age, how old were you whenever you were joining like the ski program? I think I was 12 when I joined the ski team. So those of us listening, like think about what you were like when you were 12. I think of myself as a 12 year old (laughs) and (laughs) I definitely desperately wanted to fit in. I wanted people to see me. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted just socially to fit in and I didn't. But you were doing something where somebody said, hey, you can take this road and you would fit in with all the girls are doing or you could do this other thing. But there's really not many girls, if any, doing it. As a 12 year old, like being able to discern that that's what you wanted and it went against the grain says something really interesting about your personality. So where where did you get that type of self-assurance or drive or direction to be able to choose that? It's a great question. To be honest, I don't even think I thought that much about it. I just, the question of, do you want to be on the ski racing team? Like I wasn't there for me, I wasn't there to socialize and I wasn't there to make friends. I had my friends elsewhere. Now in hindsight, it, well, it was very difficult joining the freestyle team and I didn't realize, and it wasn't honestly, it wasn't for lack of females. It was just because I was a new person coming into this group that was very tight knit and they had their established routines and they would all go to this kid, Tim Powers house for lunch. And they'd make these assembly line grilled cheese sandwiches and watch ski movies. And my whole first year on the team, I was never invited to those lunches and the whole team would go. And then I would link up with my dad and we would either get lunch in one of the lodges or we would just keep skiing through our lunch break. And then I'd go back and join the team. But that first year was really rough for me. I skied terribly. I went through a growth spurt. And so all of a sudden it was just like skiing moguls was so much harder. And I had kind of an embarrassing first day where I accidentally did three quarters of a front flip off of a jump and landed on my back. I'd never hit a jump before. And one of the best skiers on the team told me, Jen, just go straight at the jump and do a few pole plants to get your speed up. And then when you get to the end of the jump, just pop forward, pop and lean forward. And he was saying this because what most people do when they hit a jump for the first time is go off way in the back seat and then they like plop on their back like they do half of a backflip. But he didn't realize he was talking to someone who's very literal and <laughs> that I was going to follow his exact word. So, yeah, there was just I mean, it was it was not a smooth entry into that team by any means. And after that first year, I remember my dad coming to me and saying, you know, you don't have to do this. Like if you want to be done, you can be done. And I just knew I don't know where it came from, but I knew that I had not skied to my potential and that I would regret if I walked away. 
I was like, I have to do one more season. And just so that everybody can know that Jen is actually a good skier. I think it's, you know, in some part, I think a lot of my success in the early days was driven from insecurity, ironically. And I think that like insecurity doesn't ever really go away. I mean, you could be at the top, top, top. And whenever you became world champion or multiple, like whenever you won your gold medal X games or your gold medal at the X games, I'm sure you still had some level of insecurity because completely because being at the peak only lasts for a short period of time. Yes, for sure. And I remember that moment very clearly because winning X games for us, that's, that's the pinnacle event in our sport. The Olympics came later and the way that Olympic invites go, as you probably know, you don't always end up with the strongest field of athletes in the Olympics. And so for us, X Games is the most competitive event every single year. And it's one you want to win. And I thought once I win X Games, then the entire industry is going to know how good I am. They're going to understand, like I'm going to have all the sponsorships and then I'm going to be super happy. And it's like this dream come true and I'll live out the rest of my days in peace. I was 23 when I won (laughs) X games. And I remember just a few short months after, you know, some of that did come true. I did get a lot more sponsors and people were a lot more interested in me. And I remember thinking like, this is bizarre. Like I am the same person that has been showing up doing the work every single day. And now that like one event turned out differently, all of a sudden I'm on people's radars and they care about me in air quotes. And I was left kind of feeling like, well, now I have to just go and win X games again and prove that it's not a fluke. And once I saw myself having those thoughts, I really started asking myself why I was pushing so hard and like what I was actually chasing. Cause I think a lot of it was that external validation. And later in my career, it was certainly, I was not always there for myself. And I don't have all those answers yet. I've been working on trying to understand and appreciate my inherent internal self-worth, which I can logically know is there, but to feel it without outside achievement and great success is a whole other thing that I'm still working on. Yeah. And I think that many people listening can relate with that, always chasing achievement so that they can be recognized. And I heard something really interesting. It was a book I was listening to, and it was something to the effect of, what parent did you seek attention from the most? And what did you have to do to get it? And I thought that was really interesting because for me, it was like I had to be perfect at something and I had to achieve at the highest level to get that type of attention and love. And then I spend the rest of my life chasing achievement, trying to get attention and love to feel accepted from others when really self-acceptance has to come or acceptance has to come from the self. You work a lot with women. You you have a an awesome life coaching business. How can people, men and women, look for more ways to deal with their own insecurities and to find ways to even understand what makes them feel worthy? It's a great question. And, you know, step one is becoming aware of the thoughts that you're having. And step two is just questioning everything you think. We have a tendency to believe everything that we think. And oftentimes we are just lying to ourselves. We're playing out, like you said, learn patterns, learn behaviors from our youth. And really the difference between a belief and a thought is that a belief is just a thought that you have practiced 
over and over and over again. So when you have learned or you had the thought that I get, you know, dad's love if I excel at this sport, when you think that every day for, you know, the first 18 years of your life, it becomes ingrained in you and you don't even realize that it's an optional thought. So really, you know, our thoughts are what create our feelings. And if we are crediting external situations and circumstances for the way that we feel, we end up trying to control the world, trying to control other people, trying to control results in order to get the feeling that we're chasing. When in reality, it's the thoughts that we think about those external situations and circumstances and people that generate that feeling inside of us. And once you understand that, then you can start choosing thoughts intentionally that bring about the feeling that you want to have in this world. And it's simple, but it's definitely not easy. And as soon as I figure it out in one area of my life, there's another one that pops up and I feel like I have to start all over again. But that is, is from what I've found, kind of the key to feeling good in this world and learning that sometimes you don't want to feel good. And feeling bad is as much a part of feeling good as just feeling good, if that makes sense. Yeah, like ignoring the bad feelings and pretending they're not there is also really damaging to the self because you, you need to have the spectrum of emotions, not just one emotion. A hundred percent. And it's that contrast that really allows you to feel joy. And oftentimes, like when we aren't allowing those negative emotions, we end up just filling it with, with pleasure, which is not the same as well-being. <laughs> and we end up paying the price for that in the long term. So I want to continue with this theme of goal setting because you mentioned the Olympics. A big part of your story is regarding the Olympics, and I won't tell it for you. I want you to tell that. <laughs> but yeah, I just want to hear that story about the pursuit of the Olympics and then how through the course of your life, your process for setting goals has changed. So yeah, I wanted to go to the Olympics. I originally wanted to go to the Olympics for mogul skiing. And once half pipe started having world cups and I kind of saw that as an avenue, then my, my attention shifted fully to half pipe. I liked it more. I was better at it. So I had this goal, but the problem was our sport wasn't in the Olympics. So not only did I have to become a good enough athlete, I had to advocate on behalf of the sport and encourage other people in our sport to do the same, to try to convince FIS and the IOC to add half pipe skiing into the Olympics. And that was a long road. Ultimately in 2014, we got half pipe skiing in the Olympics in Sochi. And that was 12 years into my professional skiing career, 12 or yeah, something like that. And I had had at that point, six or seven knee surgeries, I think, um, a crazy amount. Wow. Um, but yeah, so I had this goal and then I trained for it and I worked really hard. And then I went to the Olympics and I won a gold medal. Um, JK, you know, that's not true. I ended up getting very close to going to the Olympics and coming back from a ton of injuries. And in 2013, we had our first Olympic qualifying event in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I ended up taking a crash and tearing my left ACL meniscus and cartilage. And that was 
after coming back from a right knee injury that I had sustained in 2012 that required three surgeries to get back from. And I had been like pacing my return and building my run back up to where it was and saving those technical tricks for when I really needed them. And yeah, so in that moment, my run for the Olympics came to an end. I was 27 years old, I want to say. And I was pretty crushed, but I also remember feeling a huge wave of relief because I had put everything on the Olympics for so long and I was working for it, but I had to do so much mental coaching, self-coaching every single day to even get myself to show up. I had my, my skin was totally broken out. I had horrible acne, which was never really a thing for me. It was just completely stress related. And after I tore my ACL, I remember my skin started to clear up and I was like, this is very strange because literally I was more stressed trying to qualify for the team than I was having blown my knee and not going. And I think in some ways the having not qualified for the team because of an injury was sort of this gracious thing for my ego where I didn't have to play out the scenario where I just wasn't good enough for the team. I got to kind of blame the injury, but at the same time, I don't think I was good enough for the team. There were about, you know, six or seven of, of the top 10 in the world were Americans, but only four can go. And so while I was in the top 10, I don't think I was in the top four. I think there were four American women skiing better than me that year. And I don't know that I would have qualified for the team, whether or not I had torn my ACL. But I also knew that going to the Olympics and having that cherry on top, you know, like would going to the Olympics be enough or did I have to go to the Olympics and then win? Would getting third place at the Olympics be enough? Like what was going to be enough for me to really feel good? Because winning X Games a few years prior, I thought that was going to be enough. And that faded away after just a few months. So I really used that learning experience from X Games and the realizations I had through that to help me cope with the loss of the Olympics. And I thought I was completely done and that I would fully hang up the hat after that season. I ended up competing for one more year, just doing the World Cups that were in the US, the Grand Prix Tour, so that I could end on a slightly more positive note. And it was good to get the closure. And I knew for sure that I was done by the end of that season. It was, I just had no, no gusto left. I was no longer willing to take the hits required. I didn't have the same fire in me. And I remember being in Mammoth, California, trying to muscle through a contest in high winds. And I didn't even want to do straight airs. And one of my younger teammates came through and just did her full run, like no hesitation. And I'm like, yeah, yep. I don't have it anymore. So that's when I decided to call it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different interesting things there. One of them is like athletes knowing when to retire. Because in in my sport in particular, like I feel like you can, it's your brain that gives out before your body. Like you might get a little bit slower in some regards, but you get better in other places that makes up for it. But the fire is what goes away. The desire to continue going yeah. out there and training and making those sacrifices and when you show up on race day, wanting it bad enough, like, I think that that kind of fades away. And that's kind of when you have to start thinking about, well, should I be retiring? But it's hard to retire because yeah. 
your identity is tied up with that. And I've heard you talk about this and I'm excited to talk about this. Like, how old were you when you retired? Late 20s? Yeah, 28. Yeah. So how did you transition from that point? Terribly. Yeah. Sucked. It was the worst. Yeah. It was horrible. And particularly in a sport like mine, which is super dangerous. I mean, one of one of the pivotal moments for me where I think things started to unwind was in 2012. A friend and fellow competitor of ours took a crash in the half pipe and ended up passing away from injuries that she sustained. And that was never a scenario that I ever thought was possible. And I think some of the younger athletes were able to kind of write it off as, you know, a fluke accident, a freak accident. And in some ways it was, but I just like, I couldn't write it off anymore. But yeah, the, the actual act of stepping away and retiring as a professional athlete is extremely challenging. Not only is your identity wrapped up in it, but if we're being honest, it is an amazing lifestyle. You get to work out for a living. It's awesome. And you don't, you're not tied to anybody's schedule. You know, you have certain training sessions here and there, but you literally just get to work out and eat good food. And that's your job. And I got to write and I got to travel and I got to share photos and the world treats you differently because we, especially Americans, very much idolize athletes and their successes. So you get a lot of external validation that builds you up and makes you feel really confident and really great when you're at the top of your game. But as soon as you're done, all of that very quickly starts to unravel. And I do not think we do a good enough job of instilling, you know, to bring this kind of full circle to what we were talking about earlier, as far as self-worth, we don't do a good enough job teaching athletes who aren't the best or who, who are the best, that they still have worth and value and are good humans, regardless of how much they're achieving, how much they're getting paid and how many frequent flyer miles you have and what status on an airline you are. And you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So it was a rough transition. My dad actually, um, my dad passed away two months after my last half pipe contest. And I left him, I flew home cause he wasn't doing well. And when I was there, he took a fall and ended up breaking his hip and I didn't want to fly back to Utah for my last contest. And he was like, you got to go, you have to go. It's more important. Um, and I went and he ended up passing away two months later. So I lost my dad and my identity and my career and my income, like everything just unraveled all at once. So it was a rough, rough few years. Yeah. And it's interesting because we talk about athlete retirement a lot, but there's also, you know, most people get to retire from their career at some point. And normally it's when people are in their 60s. And those people are also walking away from their identity. Like if they were an engineer and a manager and that's what they were. And now suddenly like that structure is gone, that title is gone. Or if they're like a CEO or even if they just say that they just didn't really have like a a high power name, but just walking away from something that you've been doing your whole life and then changing just in general, there isn't much information on how to transition in that area. No, there's not. And it's, it's something that was very close to my heart. And I've yet to actually launch this course because life continues on (laughs) sometimes in ways that you don't foresee, but I was putting together a 
course to help retiring athletes navigate the transition. And I've talked to quite a few and helped some through that transition. But really, the first is starting to understand what it is that actually makes up your identity. And we societally tend to say who we are based on what we do, but there's just so much more to it. And really starting to pull that apart, but also realizing that you don't have to, just because you're not skiing professionally anymore doesn't mean that you actually have to let go of that part of your identity. Like that's still very much a part of who I am. And it's funny that, you know, you mentioned that we've kind of gotten to know each other over social media. And so we know each other where we are now and we don't know all of the details behind it. And I sometimes think about that. I'm like, I wonder, you know, the people that follow me on Instagram, I wonder if they have any idea some of the things that that I've done. And I constantly am, am asking myself that, like, who, who am I? And yeah, now being a new mom, I get to kind of <laughs> do that all over again. Don't even get me started on trying to figure out how to write your little Instagram bio concisely oh. about like who you are. I'm like, I totally um, think about that all the there's time. Not enough characters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, something that you touched on earlier is something that I'm really passionate about, and it's this feeling of enoughness and how chasing after achievement is only only leads to temporary satisfaction. So you mentioned like, yeah, I, I won the gold medal at the X Games, but then I now I have to be a two-time gold medalist. Or if I went to the Olympics, like, well, I could get the bronze, but then now I have to go back and get the gold. And if I get, if I get the gold, I have to go back. And then, well, maybe that's not enough. Maybe I need to change disciplines. Like... Chasing achievement is this endless road. There is no, I'll be happy when. And we put our happiness into the future of this thing that we're going to achieve when really we need to learn to be happy with who we are now. But that's really hard to do. And I do think that 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 partially comes down to how we set our goals. So if we set a goal saying, I need to achieve X and then I'll be happy, that's not a really good way to set a goal, an outcome-based goal. So how have you changed your goal setting with everything you've learned about the happiness horizon? I'm realizing that you may have asked me this question earlier, and I totally tangented and never even answered your question about how goal setting has changed for well, me. It was a really um, long but question. But you were totally right. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the key is in goal setting is finding a goal for which you can fall in love with the process as you are pursuing the goal. So you can set a goal to be, I could decide tomorrow that I want to go and I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And this is like super important to me. But if I'm only thinking about it as becoming the surgeon and I'm not thinking about having to go to med school and what I'm going to have to say no to in order to go to med school and how my life is going to have to change in order to do that, then I'm not going to love the process. And then I'll become an orthopedic surgeon and maybe I like it, but maybe I don't. And I've made myself miserable for 10 years in the process. So I think what was kind of accidental for me in skiing that I'm still working on figuring out in my new life is that I loved training for skiing and I loved competing and I sure I loved winning, but the win and the satisfaction you get from it is so short lived that if that's all you're chasing, then 99% of the time you're going to be miserable. 1% of the time you're elated. And that to me is just not like, it's not a good balance. So trying to figure out how you can construct your life where whatever it is that you're working toward, you have a really compelling reason 
for why you want that goal in the first place, but also the steps that you have to take are things that you are going to enjoy. And that's not to say that there's not going to be hard days. Like there were hard workouts. I calculated in my ski career that I spent half of my training time coming back from injuries over my entire career. I've had 10 knee surgeries and that's insane. So it wasn't an easy path by any means, but I, I absolutely loved that process. And so now I'm trying to figure out how to do that, but it's not as, as concise my life now (laughs) to try to get all the pieces that athletics provided. It's a little more chaotic now, (laughs) but it's still good. (laughs) Yeah. And we're going to, we are going there, but I have one more question about your athletic career. And you mentioned all these injuries and one of the biggest questions I get from people, because in cycling, I don't think that you get injured as much as you do in skiing, but injury, like you're going to fall and maybe your injury is like, whatever, you have a a hematoma and you have to wait a month or a few weeks before you get back on your bike, or maybe you broke your collarbone or, you know, whatever. If you have these injuries, it's really hard for people to get back into it. And especially with what you were doing with half pipe, like you're in the air. And how did you get your confidence back after these injuries? A lot of mental work. My most successful return from injury was 2009 going into the 2010 winter. And that was my best competition season ever. I won every single contest that year, except for one in which I got second And the reason was because, well, A, there's a couple things. I still had the fire in the drive. I still hadn't tasted the victory that I was chasing. So there was still this allure that there's magic in the win, right? And so I still had a little bit of that fire, but from a tactical standpoint, other than doing all the physical work and doing rehab and and getting super strong, I was visualizing my run every single day. I would spend time every single day, if not multiple times a day, visualizing the run that I wanted to do. And I actually have a guide, a resource on my website. It's geared towards mountain biking, I believe. But I have a visualization guide if people want to download that, if they go to jenhudak.com forward slash visualization. And I'll double check this. Okay. (laughs) Because I'm like, haven't talked about it in a while, but I have a guide on visualization and that process is super powerful because our bodies are kind of dumb and they (laughs) often can't tell the difference between what we are imagining and what is actually happening. And if you can practice visualization in a really effective way, it's amazing how much ground you can cover. And I, I a hundred percent know that's why I was able to come back with confidence because my body, I still had those motor neuron connections, the muscle to brain, like my body knew what to do. I didn't have to overthink it once I got back on snow. Yeah. Your brain totally gets in the way. And I think about this. Well, one example I have is like 24 hour racing. Whenever you see a hill Mm -hmm. and a climb and you can see the top of the climb, your brain gets in your way and starts telling you all these things about the climb. But when it's dark, you or even with technical stuff, it gets dark and you don't have the same depth perception that you have whenever it's light out. So the climb doesn't seem as bad as it did during the day or the the technical thing doesn't seem as technical because you just can't see it. So I've actually because it forces you to be where you are. It forces you into the present, right? Like looking at the top of the hill is living in the future. Totally. That's so interesting. And I've actually been using that in getting back, you know, trying to get my high end fitness back after pregnancy is my mind says, you're not as strong as you were for riding that that's really steep pitch. 
And then my brain has gotten in the way of that. So what I've started doing is mm-hmm. in practicing the night riding technique of not being able to see the top. So I put my head down. I don't let myself look to see where the top is. And then I look up. I'm like, oh, I'm already there. And my brain. That's awesome. So if, when your brain tells you you can't do something, it's right. A lot of the time it's wrong. And I like the visualization yeah. that technique that you talked about, because you're telling your brain, like, this is how we're going to think about this now. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I love the way you just described that. It's super cool. Awesome. Yeah, the injury thing is, I still can't even imagine what that must have been like for you, like going in for surgeries and yeah, it know, sucks. And, and knowing that this could, <laughs> like, how do you keep going knowing that this could happen again? I, I know you said you ended up retiring partially because of the danger, but yeah, how do you do that again, knowing that you're going to put yourself at risk? Well, you have to weigh the risk. When I was younger, it was a lot easier because most of my injuries, I was always able to look back on them and say, okay, here's what I could have done differently. And here's how I could have kept myself safe. And almost all of the time I was able to walk away still believing that I was fully in control. And I took a crash in 2011 where that belief, that mindset kind of unraveled for me. And I never skied the same after that. I had to, I had to do so much work mentally in order to get out there that I just couldn't do it. So what happened, I was doing a 900, which is two and a half rotations and half pipes are 22 foot walls of vertical ice basically. And I was about 10 feet above that. So I did a 900. I was super fired up. I was skiing really well that year, but I wasn't like getting the results that I wanted. And so I was just on a mission and I went absolutely massive to do this trick. And when I came back around, I'd kind of missed my takeoff a little bit. So I drifted in toward the flat part of the half pipe, which is called the deck. And so I I wasn't expecting to hit it. And all of a sudden I impacted there. So 10 feet straight to flat. And then I ended up cartwheeling down the 22 feet into the bottom of the half pipe, knocked myself out, dislocated my shoulder, tweaked my MCL. And it wasn't the worst of my injuries, but it was the most frightening crash because as I was crashing, I couldn't do anything to keep myself safe. I remember just being fully stretched out in this really vulnerable position and I couldn't protect myself. And I was so unaware of the fact that I was about to crash that coming back from that, I couldn't say you know, Jen, you just needed to do this differently. Like in theory, I just needed to pop a little bit harder, but I had thought that I had popped hard enough. And so that totally freaked me out. And then the following that summer, our sport finally got into the Olympics. So I was like, well, I can't retire. I finally have the opportunity to make this dream that I've been working my entire career for come true. And then, you know, the following winter, was the accident with Sarah Burke and she ended up passing away. And so all of a sudden I was just like, what in the hell am I doing? You know, I don't know if it's worth it anymore, but I knew that leaving myself with the, what if the, what if you had kept going, what if you kept pushing for the Olympics? What if you didn't quit that, that question, I didn't want to deal with that question. I didn't want to live that out for the rest of my life. And so it was more important for me to continue taking the risk 
and doing the best I could at, at managing and mitigating the risk, trying to train and be as strong as I could and do all of the mental work and continue with the visualization. So I continued doing all of that, but it was just absolutely exhaustive because it was, it was just constant, like managing the fearful brain in me that was saying this is too dangerous and it's not worth it. So taking all of that, shifting to, so we, we talked a lot about Jen Hudak of the past and Jen Hudak being different today and how our past shapes our present in some ways and in a lot of ways. So now you are a former professional skier. You're a new mom. You're an entrepreneur with multiple businesses. You have your podcast, Balanced Pursuits. You're a writer. You're a life coach. <laughs> Am I missing? Am I missing? Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing I'm something. I'm an iFit trainer. Yeah, I fit trainer. We're both I fit trainers. I'm a sports broadcaster. I do commentating for that's right. X Games. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's I think that's everything now. <laughs> At one point a year ago, I had a nine to five job working in marketing, but I don't do that anymore, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So like how have you taken this person you were and then basically replanted your seeds and, and grown all these amazing different projects that you have because it's hard to shift into like yeah. even entrepreneurship is, is uh, in, in and of itself like regardless of being a former like you know your entire life dedicated to being an athlete is a really like challenging but also really awesome road yeah it is and so the entrepreneur part I think largely goes hand in hand with my husband and I do not think I would have ventured into entrepreneurship in the way that I have without him. But as far as like the, the overall life construct, basically what happened is I retired. I felt like, you know, I had a mortgage, I had bills to pay. And I was like, I need a job that has X amount of salary attached to it. So I can't just like, I can't wait tables. And actually I probably could, cause you probably make pretty good money, although not right now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that led me into getting a nine to five in this marketing job. And I remember being excited. I was going to have a cubicle and I could put family photos there, but that faded away pretty quickly when I realized that this sedentary computer life was just not for me. So I started picking apart my athletic career and I was like, what was so fulfilling about it? What did I actually love about it? And it was the lifestyle, it was the travel, but it was also that as an athlete, I got to satisfy all of these different interests of mine. I was an, I did theater when I was a kid. I've always loved performing. I love talking. So the podcast is a way to talk, you know, as an athlete, you're interviewed on camera all the time. And I loved talking on camera and it was just, but it was all this neat package. So I tried to start piecing things back together in my life, but this is where things ended up getting kind of chaotic because there's a lot more demand on your time as an adult with a nine to five job and then trying to add in all these extracurriculars to give you that complete package. I ended up kind of wearing myself out and I'm still in the phase of sort of trying to shed some of the things that I picked up along the way because it's too much. But one of those was a business that my husband and I co-founded called Escapod. We manufacture teardrop trailers. And this was really Chris's brainchild. I just had I just had the experience of being able to live out my dream that when he came to me with this idea and a dream that I could tell he was excited about, I just said yes. There was no questioning of like how you're going to do it or where is the money going to come from. It was just like, well, this is something that's lighting you up, so let's do it. 
And we have apparently followed our instincts well through that. And we balance each other well. Chris is a little bit more risk tolerant. I'm a little more risk averse. We brought in a partner a few years ago who also just adds to that balance really, really well. And now we have 10 employees. We just renovated a 10,000 square foot building. We are manufacturing six trailers a month and are booked out for about seven months on sales. And we have a, a rental fleet so you can actually rent them and just take them for some little adventures. And what's fun about Escapod now and being the, the size that it, is, that it is, is that I can focus on the things that I'm good at, which is the writing and the marketing content and all of that. And Chris gets to be out in the shop with his guys building trailers. And our partner gets to focus on the graphic design elements and making them really graphically beautiful and giving us a beautiful website. And so we're finally big enough where we get to each live in our our areas of expertise. But for a while, we were just all wearing a lot of different hats and doing whatever we needed to do in order to make it work. Yeah. And first of all, congratulations. I think that's how I first found you is I was researching different types of trailers. And I think I found Escapod. And then I started looking into the brand more. And no I, think way. Th I think that's how I initially found you. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I love that. Because I had followed you for a while. I don't remember where I first heard about you, but mountain biking, because I did dabble in mountain bike racing when I retired from skiing. And so I just started following a lot of pro mountain bikers. But then I quickly realized that I just didn't want to be training hard for things anymore. And mountain biking is not that much safer than skiing. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> and the, the amazing thing about being an entrepreneur, like my husband also is an entrepreneur and a business owner and has grown his business into a pretty large business. And being a part of that is so cool because as athletes, like we love education. We love learning how to get better at something. And as an entrepreneur building a business, there are so many different elements, so many hats you have to wear, so much learning that has to happen. And also like coaching that you can receive. And just, I think that yeah. it's a really cool, it, it's a difficult road for sure, but it's a really great step if you're an athlete that really is self-driven, self-motivated and loves like pushing and learning and, and taking risks. Yeah, no, it really is. There's a lot of crossover there. And I think particularly going from an individual sport, like cycling or skiing to entrepreneurship, there's a ton of crossover. I think for more of a team sport person where you're more taking orders for lack of a better word. I mean, it's not like we don't have coaches as individual sport athletes, but everything is, is everything is curated to perfectly suit us. And you can do that in entrepreneurship as well. And you have to be able to hold yourself accountable and be willing to work crazy hours. <laughs> there was some quote that I saw where it's like, people complain about like working 40 hours a week. So they quit their job to become an entrepreneur. And then suddenly they're working 80 hours a week. And it's like, it doesn't feel as miserable to work 80 hours a week for yourself because you get to when you put in that work, you see the effect and the impact of that work directly versus working within a system and an organization. It's just, it's less often that way. Yeah. And another interesting thing is as your business grows from like more of a solo or small team to leading a larger team, mm -hmm. that in and of itself is like a separate skill set than actually like building a business. Like leadership and team building is part of it, but it's, it's, a, that's a hard yeah. thing to learn. Yeah. And that's where, you know, Chris's background 
he was in restaurant management for years and years and years. And he had a long background, like growing up of building and restoring cars and welding and all of this stuff that lended itself well to, to teardrop trailers. But as we grew, it was his management skills that he learned all his years managing people in restaurants that has ended up really serving us well and allowing us to build a team that, you know, we've got, we've only lost one employee over however long the last couple of years, like we just keep adding people to the team and they want to stick around and they want to be a, a part of this. And we really want to create a culture in which people feel like they can grow as human beings and individuals and develop their skill set and that there's like opportunity for them within the organization. And so that's been really fun is we have created an HR department now and I'm like the head of HR for <laughs> Escapod. And so I'm going to get to do goal setting stuff with our employees in their review process and all of that. And and that is, it's super exciting to kind of see all of these different pieces be able to kind of come full circle and serve you in, in the next chapter. Yeah. And speaking of the next chapter and creating an environment where someone can thrive, you are a new mom and our sons Woo! are like a week apart. <laughs> yeah. you. I was due a little, I think you were due before me, but I ended up having my baby early and you ended up having yours. I know. Late. <laughs> and I'm still so jealous. I told my baby every day, like you're coming early. And yeah, he did not want to come out of there. <laughs> that is so funny. I'm so curious to hear all about your labor because that was like, holy moly. Um, e mine was very long and challenging, but we got him out at the end and it has been very humbling to say the least. I mean, he was born just before, all the coronavirus stuff started picking up and yours too, I think, because poor mothers now having to, you know, not able to have their partners in the room or they're only able to be there for 45 minutes after the birth or whatever it is. It's just so crazy because there's no way I would have gotten through this without Chris. And I needed him long after that baby was here. But we kind of decided quickly that we wanted to have kids and we had both been back and forth for a long time and I think once we both at the same time said we wanted to have kids then there was just no like questioning it I immediately got my IUD out and we got pregnant and I think it's kind of like walking up to a really big cliff over water where you want to jump off into the water and like at a certain point you just have to stop overthinking what it's going to be like once you jump and just jump and we just jumped and it was crazy because, like I mentioned, we we have a 10,000 square foot building that we just finished renovating. So we bought that in November. So from when I was like five months up until I gave birth, we were in in this massive building doing renovations and trying to get get our operations moved over into this place. So it's been trying in a lot of different ways all the way leading up. We spent about a week in the hospital because of just, just jaundice levels. But now he's good and he's finally getting to the age where he kind of interact. And like when he sees my face, he gets excited and I can tell that he knows who I am, which is super special. But honestly, I the first four to six weeks were just I mean, they were super hard. They were super duper duper hard. The lack of sleep was insane. And I felt kind of guilty and shameful that I was like having such a hard time and like I'd lose my temper and and then I'd be ashamed that I lost my temper with this innocent little baby 
And so, yeah, it's been a really the next great learning experience of my life. (laughs) Yeah. And what a great, a great place to be able to like take all of these important mental skills that you've learned in your life and to be able to apply them to motherhood and also to teach your kid like what you've learned, whether hopefully they'll listen to us, but (laughs) yeah, right. Yeah. I'm excited for that phase. I think the the newborn phase is is challenging for me and Chris because we're just like, we're such doers. And there's a lot of this phase where you just need to be. And so I have to remind myself of that just to be present with him in whatever, whatever phase he's in. And then, you know, we were talking about feelings earlier and that you have to have the negative feelings in order to have the good feelings. And not only have I had to remind myself of that through this, but I also remind myself of that for my son when he is crying inconsolably or, and I just want to help him not cry anymore because I want him to not feel whatever it is that he's feeling that's making him upset. And I have to remind myself, like he is a baby and he is a human and he's supposed to be uncomfortable sometimes. Like I don't have to just soothe him and calm him. Like I'm obviously still going to (laughs) try, but it's okay if he, if he doesn't settle down and it's okay if he's experiencing a little bit of pain, it's not going to, it's not going to kill him. So, but it's so hard to see him cry. (laughs) I know something that I've, it's kind of like a mantra for how I'm parenting, you know, people can, they might, they may be like, no, I don't like that, but growth comes from struggle. And if you think about anything in your life, like where you were able to grow and learn, it's because you had to struggle a little bit. And I mean, certainly you don't want to just like leave them to their own devices and like have them get hurt or injured, you know, too much. But (laughs) yeah, like whenever whenever he's on his tummy and he's starting to get mad, like, I don't immediately swoop in. I let him get kind of mad because that's yeah, that's going to be a motivator to get better. And right. We're helping them if we let if we allow the space to struggle a little bit. That is how they get better, not by us doing everything for them. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And tummy time is like the perfect example of that. The other day was so funny. He was doing tummy time and then he sort of like started pushing up. He pushes up through his legs a lot. And so he got his butt really high in the air, but he doesn't have like the arm strength. So then he's just like driving his face into the ground. (laughs) totally frustrating himself and but you're right like that's how they learn how to crawl and then from crawling then they're going to learn how to walk it's like that frustration of not being able to reach an object is what gets them to get there to find a way so yeah it's very very helpful yeah and I think it's really inspiring like I'm excited to be inspired by my kid to watch him learn things to fail over and over and to continue moving forward and it's just such a great reminder for us Yeah, it really is. And I am excited, like thinking about teaching him how to do all the things like ride a bike and ski and the joy that he can have. And even right now, that kid will just stare at the ceiling and giggle and laugh and smile. And he's like, just looking at like, a shadow on the ceiling. It's like, oh, you know, there is something to be happy about right now. (laughs) Totally. And my last thing I want to bring up is you were skiing while you're pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, in our society, and I've talked about this on the podcast, and I've written about it about how pregnancy is not like a handicap. And how as long as you are confident and comfortable, and it's medically okay, for you to continue your sport, then you can. And I actually have used you as an example of like, yeah, like, 
Jen goes out and skis. I am not a good skier, so I'm not going to go skiing <laughs> when I'm pregnant. But Jen yeah. is an amazing skier, and she's confident and comfortable, and she knows where her limits are, so she's going to continue skiing. Yes, exactly. And and it totally is a personal choice. I think the most important thing for any woman who's pregnant and wanting to do activities is to listen to your body and to be completely honest with yourself. Like, is this an activity that you did prior? And are you in control of you doing the activity? Later in my pregnancy, I was not comfortable being at the ski resort because there are just so many variables of other people being around that made me super uncomfortable. And when I would go, I was just on high alert the whole time. So I preferred to just go for backcountry ski tours and get a little cardio workout wall skiing as well. And that felt better, but it's funny because I stopped biking before you could even tell I was pregnant. Cause I felt horrible on the bike oh, and you feel terrible I'm, on the bike. Yes. Oh <laughs> God. I mean, and I'm like, thankfully I wasn't training for, to be a professional athlete anymore. So I could make the choice to not like go, Oh my God, it just felt awful. You just, I was like completely zapped of energy. So I just stopped biking and then skiing felt fantastic. Like even I, I didn't notice my belly even when it was there and I was skiing. I mean, I skied until I was almost, I think I skied until I was like seven and a half months pregnant. So probably four weeks before he was born, I was still skiing. And it was mostly because the reason I stopped was because I couldn't get my feet in my boots anymore because <laughs> they had swollen so much. And it was like so painful, but I loved it. And I loved skiing with him and it really made me feel more connected to my son while I was skiing. And I'm hoping that he'll have taken something from the womb and love skiing in real life. <laughs> I'm amazed that you could like bend down and like oh, latch your boots. boots. No, yeah. no, 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 no. That was so hard. Chris had to buckle my boots a few times. Oh, okay. the end. I had to kind of do like a side leaning thing because bending forward was just not happening. And putting shoes on, even shoes was hard enough. So yeah, it was all about the clogs <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah. Something interesting about riding was I felt worse in my first trimester when you when you would look at me and you couldn't even tell I was yeah. pregnant. I felt worse on my bike then and I felt the best on my bike during my third trimester. That's so funny. I think I probably would have too, but I didn't I didn't try to get back on my bike. I agree. I hormonally felt pretty awful until probably halfway through the second trimester till right around like 18, 19 weeks, I started to feel a little bit better. And then by the end, though, I was pretty uncomfortable just like physically being that pregnant. But as much as I didn't like when I was pregnant, I didn't really enjoy being pregnant. And now I'm all nostalgic for it. And I kind of miss being mm. pregnant. <laughs> I don't I'm not actually every day I say to Matt, I'm very thankful that I was able to get pregnant and have a healthy baby. But every day I say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's nice to be in our bodies again. And like, just to be able to sit on the couch comfortably. I couldn't sit on the couch comfortably for the last like two months of being pregnant. <laughs> and my last question for you is actually, so you've had, you know, a lot of recoveries from injuries and getting your body to a point where you wanted it as an athlete. How have you yeah. applied that as a new mom? Because everybody has a different birth experience and postpartum experience, but birth kind of does injure your body. Yeah. And you can recover from it. But how have you applied those my mental skills and physical skills to that? Yeah, well, so I'm at a point in my life where I don't have to have like, I don't have an external goal that I am training for. So I kind of want one again. But what was helpful for me 
And what has been helpful for me when I'm coming back from injuries where it's very unknown what's going to happen is to remove any kind of expectation. So do the things that are good for you, but remove the, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so that A happens. If we can remove that from the table and you're just doing it because it's good for you and it feels good and then see what happens when you get out there. That's kind of been helpful for me. And expectations are tricky because like, so my first day back on the bike outdoors felt phenomenal. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm riding this well. This is amazing. And then you go out like two days later and you're like, why isn't this amazing? Why do you suck? This is terrible. Um, And it's so funny because literally the first day I had zero expectations. And so it was just enjoyable. And then because it was enjoyable, I expected the next time I would go out to be enjoyable. And so all of a sudden those expectations come back into play. But yeah, actually, I I told you this via Instagram chat, but one of your Instagram stories the other day where you talked about, you know, it's a privilege to be able to do the work. When I was riding yesterday with Chris and we were actually able to go ride together and my mom watched our baby and that was amazing in itself. And I was just getting so down on myself because I was just feeling so unfit and so slow and going uphill. I kept looking at my rear tire. I'm like, it has to be flat. (laughs) Nope, (laughs) it's not flat. And I just reminded myself of that. You know, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do the work. It's a privilege to be able to try to, I don't want to say get our bodies back, but to do these activities again and to find a new way. It might not ever feel like it once did, but I still get to be on my bike and I still get to find a way to enjoy it and all while respecting my body and the process that it has to go through because it took nine months to grow that little guy and we're only two and a half months of him being in the world. And so trying to give myself grace. That's awesome. I love that. It's so funny. I hear a baby crying in the background and I can't tell if it's your baby or my baby. And I'm like, is it? I, I think oh, it's, it's mine. <laughs> I keep like taking my headphone out, it's like mine. in and out. And I'm like, I can't tell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if that's what you were doing. Yeah, I was like, yeah, is it's that... mine. Yeah. It's having a fussy day. But yeah. grandma's got it. I hope. Oh. I owe her big time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for enlisting grandma to help so that you could come on this podcast and for being awesome and for being vulnerable it's hard to be vulnerable. And I also think that self-acceptance actually comes from being comfortable with being vulnerable, because if you can learn to just accept your emotions and then share them with other people, you realize that you're not alone. And especially with being a new mom. So thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. And thanks for everything that you're doing to just bring great conversations into the world and being an example of what's possible. And where can people connect with you? Instagram is probably the best way and you can learn more about me on my website. My Instagram is just at Jen Hudak, J-E-N-H-U-D-A-K. And my website is jenhudak.com. Lots of good little tidbits on the blog over there. It's pretty awesome. I have to say, people, (laughs) I've been all over that. And you have a free checklist whenever you sign up for your email list, which I just got yesterday. Ooh, yay. I signed up. I'm I'm in your email list. Thanks. I'm so excited. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sonia. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that exchange with myself and Jen Hudak. She is somebody that I look up to and think that she is absolutely incredible. And I can't wait to go for a mountain bike ride with her one day as well. 
If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. We read every single one of them and they keep us stoked and motivated to keep the show going and also share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. I'm with you on this journey of growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.